statement, and this is going to be the most obvious statement you will hear all day long. I'm quite certain of it. And so uh, this is not super pro- profound. I'm aware of that, uh, but, but it needs to be said for us to go where we're going to go, okay? So the, the statement is, the way you live shows what matters in your life. The way you live shows what matters in your life. Or if we want to simplify it even further, it's that actions illustrate value. Actions illustrate value. So the things that you do oftentimes directly correlate to the things that you value. And so if you are someone, let's examples, where you, um, you put all of your time and effort into your job and car- your career, so that's the most important thing in your life, there's a good chance you value either uh, money, power, position, financial security. Like th- that's, that's possible, right? If you are someone who saves every penny, like you don't spend a dime, like you are frugal, uh, maybe the thing you value based on that action is like retirement or financial security at the end of life. If you are someone who um, just lives recklessly and kind of is that YOLO mentality, right? You only live once and you just kind of live your life by the seat of your pants, maybe the thing you value most is a good time or fun. We've seen the last couple of years how COVID-19, I think, has demonstrated for a lot of us what we value more than other things based on the actions and our response to the pandemic. Your actions will illustrate your value. All right? And I think then along with that, if we start thinking through uh, how our actions illustrate our values, I think for some of us, and maybe not all the time, uh, hopefully not every time, people's actions or the way they interact with us kind of helps us or causes us to determine our own value. Like if someone comes up and punches you in the face, there's a good chance they don't value you, and then you in turn might question, man, what's my value here? If, if you are talking about someone behind their back, it's a good chance you don't value that person. That person finds out about it, and they begin to think, man, they, Pastor Dustin's been talking some trash about me, and I guess he doesn't value me, and man, maybe I shouldn't value myself, right? You see how you can kind of go down that slippery slope. Like, actions and value, the, the, there's typically a correlation. That, that was a, he doesn't talk about me. Like, we're good. Sorry. Um, so, actions correlate, illustrate value. Now, I think as Christians, as followers of Christ, prospective followers of Christ, or churchgoers, wherever you kind of fit in that, uh, a conversation around what we value is extremely formative and important. This week in the news, we've had lots of articles, news stories, and even some debates about what is valuable and what isn't valuable. Those are important conversations. Very important conversations. 
how we respond to that, like what our values is, I think is, is significant in our walk. And then, and then in turn, like where, where we find our value, like where that comes from, is also significant and important. Like part of our journey as followers of Christ, I think, is to, to step back then and look at, okay, well, what is it that, that God values? Like, what is it that he views as important? How has God's actions illustrated his value? And in turn, does that change how I see myself, how I value myself, and perhaps even how I value others? And so we're going to jump into John chapter 3, so we're in the, kind of the second installment as we walk through this amazing gospel message, and we're going to be in one of the most familiar chapters in the entire Bible. I'm quite certain there's a couple of verses in here that even if this is your first time in church, you've at least heard them referenced. Like, they're, they're just extremely well known. And as you're opening your Bibles to John chapter 3, I'm going to read just the last verse in John chapter 2, or the last three verses. Sometimes we get so excited about John chapter 3 that we skim over chapter 2, but there's a couple of verses here that I think set the stage for what Jesus is about to do here in this next chapter. So John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, this is Jesus, by the way, many people saw signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind. He didn't need anyone to tell him anything about humanity. For he knew what was in each person. Jesus knew what was in each person's heart. So I want to just talk a little bit about what this may or may not mean. So, so why is it that Jesus didn't entrust himself to the people? that had seen him perform the signs. And so lots of different thoughts. Uh, perhaps maybe it was because their faith was superficial, right? They were just believing because they saw Jesus do miracles, and that, that's kind of a surface-level faith. And so maybe that's why he was holding back. Uh, that might be the case. However, if you flip over to John chapter 20, and in my Bible it, it says the purpose of this book, it says that the signs and miracles were recorded so people would believe. So I'm not entirely sure that's it. Maybe it's part of it. Maybe it's that, that Jesus, as he had done in other places in the gospel, maybe he's kind of slow playing or he hits the pedals a little bit, not to reveal too much too fast, because he knows it's going to be overwhelming, and maybe that's what it is. Or maybe, maybe he knew something, he saw something in the crowd and humanity that caused him to pause. Now this, particularly verse 25, is a verse that was a gut punch for me. I'm going to read it again. He did not need any testimony about mankind. Meaning if he were here, he would not need you to tell him anything about me because he knows me. Now that he does know me like from a, an outward level, he knew what was in each person. He knows what's in each person. Think about that for a second. Everything that you are that you hope no one ever finds out, Jesus knows. Those thoughts that you've had, Jesus knows. The anger that you sometimes carry, guess what? He knows. The lust, the greed, all of the immorality that we keep buried, he knows. That's significant considering what he's about to tell Nicodemus here in John chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, you can follow along. They will be on the screen as well. 
And this is what it says. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs you were doing if God were not with them. So Jesus has a visitor. And this visitor comes underneath the cover of night because Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And we know in other places in the Bible he was a wealthy Pharisee. Jesus is going to call him a leader later on in this very conversation. So this is a guy of status, of power. He had a lot to lose. Some even think that maybe he was a part of the Sanhedrin, so that was the Jewish kind of Supreme Court. And so he goes, though, and he visits Jesus. There's something about this teacher that's caused him to question and pause. And so he says, you're clearly from God. And this is how Jesus responds. Verse 3, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Nicodemus is a very literal fella. He says this, How can someone be born again when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus continues, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear this sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so, so Nicodemus just asked Jesus who he is. And Jesus says, hey, let's just not even talk about that. Let me tell you why I'm really here. In order for you to see the kingdom of God, if you ever want to have a relationship with God, something has to happen. You have to be born again. Nicodemus for obvious reasons, didn't quite compute that. And so then Jesus says, well, let me explain it a little bit more. And you have to be born of water and of spirit. Let's talk about what that is and what that isn't. We read that, and sometimes we think, well, man, does that mean that I have to not only receive the Holy Spirit, but have to be baptized? Is that what Jesus is trying to say here? And I don't think it is. I think Jesus was using water to illustrate what the Spirit does in one's life. Uh, or the chapter before, Jesus was um, the water into wine. So he's in Cana, the wedding, and he is doing this first kind of miracle, the first sign, and uh, maybe this is what he was referring to. So, so you think of this old kind of beaten up wine jar that's empty, that's us. Water is poured in, that's the Holy Spirit. And what happens? New wine comes out. That we begin to produce something that we never could have produced on our own. Maybe that's what Jesus was illustrating when you're born of water and of spirit. That's the symbolic of the Holy Spirit. Nicodemus was a teacher of the law and the prophets, so he wouldn't have been uh, acutely aware of what the scrolls say. And so maybe Jesus was actually tying conversation back to what Ezekiel had said in Ezekiel 36. This is a possibility. He says, for Ezekiel 36, 24 through 27, For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries, and bring you back into your own land. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities, from your idols. I will give you, and here it is, a new heart, and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart 
I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you, and you will be able to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So Jesus is describing something that has to happen to be born again. He says, hey, you need to receive me. When you receive me, the Holy Spirit is going to reside inside of you, and then because the Holy Spirit's going to reside inside of you, you're going to be a new creation, and you're going to be able to do things that you never were able to do before. It continues. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. Still not quite certain what Jesus was saying. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? That's a question he's asking him. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life with him. Now, John's going to continue here, and, and maybe you've heard this before, this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. We're going to come back to that. It's significant. Whoever believes in him will not be condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. The parity here between John chapter 3 verses uh, 17, 16, 17, 18, and John chapter 2 verse 25 is, is mind-boggling to me. Verse 225 says that Jesus knew what was in man. He knew everything. Verse 16, 17 specifically, and 18 says that Jesus came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. You mean to tell me he knows everything that I am. He knows my brokenness. He knows my hurt. He knows my pain. He knows what I've deserved and worked really hard to get. That's death, by the way. And he saves We talked last week about the implications of the word becoming flesh. And I said that I'm not entirely sure we'll ever truly appreciate the sacrifice that Jesus made on this side of of eternity for us. I think one day we're going to be in heaven, and we're going to be walking around, and we're going to say to ourselves, I cannot believe Jesus left this to go to that. You add to it that he did that knowing knowing everything we are. And yet he still came. Jesus Christ knew your heart and yet still didn't condemn. It's the heart of the gospel message. He knew everything that you are, everything that you've done, all that you will do, and yet he didn't condemn so the thing, again, that we worked really hard for, the thing that we have really earned, death, he says, nope. 
I'm not going to condemn. I'm going to save. The beauty of the story of what Jesus is describing is that the second, the second chance to be adopted by God is something that we, we can't and certainly don't deserve. So God begins to demonstrate. It's how he demonstrates his love for us. Paul talks about that and he writes his, uh, to the Romans. Romans chapter 5. Verse 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while our heart was exposed, Christ died for us. Okay, so with that in mind, back to the original question. The way you live demonstrates what matters in your life. Or actions illustrate value. Actions illustrate value. What is it that God values more than anything else in this world? What is it that God says above everything else, like, this is what matters to me? This is how much God loved the world. That he gave his son, his one and only son, and this is why. So that no one need be destroyed. By believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. If actions demonstrate, illustrate, if they illuminate value, then your value was forever deemed the moment Jesus stepped foot on this earth. Before you can move into the theological implications of John chapter 3, and they are many, you have to stop and acknowledge, appreciate, or at least soak in the implications of this in regards to God's value for you. So the reality of the gospel is a foundation, is the reason that it's the gospel and the reason why we have it is because you matter to God. Now think about that. You might not matter at work, but guess what? You matter to God. You might not matter in the schoolroom, to God. You might not matter in the courtroom, the mine, the baseball field, the football field, the soccer field, the ranch. Guess what? You matter to God. Now, this, is, this is where the world whispers in our ear. Satan in, in particular loves to tell us the opposite. Like he, he, he loves to say, hey, life, life is bad. God must not value you. Your marriage is falling apart? You prayed for that. You must not matter to God. Your bank account's empty? Can't overcome the, the demons of your past or the addiction of the presence? You must not matter to God. That diagnosis that keeps getting worse and worse and worse? Clearly, God doesn't love you enough. But then you read this. Read John chapter 3. You begin to remember, or maybe realize for the first time, that you do matter. And God's given you more than you ever deserved, and quite possibly more than you can ever even imagine. He sends his son to live a life that you couldn't live, die a death that you des to deserve, to walk triumphantly out of the tomb, further or forever solidifying your value 
in his eyes. This is where it gets crazy. He doesn't just determine your value for a temporary period. See, everything in this world, like value fluctuates, and at some point it becomes worthless. Let's, let's be real. God doesn't just say, hey, Aaron, I, I, I'm going to give you value, and I'm going to deem you valuable for a period of time. He says, nope. I'm going to do it forever. Like, I, I, listen, I, I know, I know that a little bit of Aaron goes a long way. I get it, right? Like, like and even people that I love dearly, like, I'm not entirely sure I'd want to spend eternity with them. Like, yeah, maybe like 10,000 years, but man, we probably should take a break after that, right? But then God says, you know what? Despite of all that you are, despite of the brokenness that you bring to the table, I don't just want you, I want you forever and for always. That's how valuable you are. Church, your life, your life matters to eternity. There's one thing you walk away with today, it's that. Your life matters to eternity. That means today, yesterday, tomorrow, the day after that, you keep going all the way down. That's how valuable you are. One of my most favorite shows that I have to be really careful uh, watching because I'll end up binging like 12 hours of it and get nothing done is, is it's the show called Shark Tank. Does anyone know that show? You know, watch it. It's addicting, right? So if you've not seen the show Shark Tank, basically what it is, you've got like three or four billionaires or millionaires who are sitting on chairs, and you have entrepreneurs that come up and they pitch their product or their idea to the sharks. And, and so they go through this catchy kind of pitch. Sometimes it's really cheesy. Sometimes it's really good. And then they stop and they say, okay, uh, I'm asking for $100,000 in return for 10% stake in my company or, or some number like that. And what happens immediately after that? is the sharks then respond, okay, so you're valuing your company at this. So $100,000 for a 10% stake, the company is worth, you're listening, math, it's awesome, a million dollars. And the next question always is, okay, how did you come up with that valuation? What are your sales? What are your assets? What are your losses? Projections. And sometimes they're able to back up that number really well. Other times, though, they... They say, well, um, you know, I've had like $25 in sales, but the idea is really good. And the sharks chew them up and spit them out. Really quickly, their value is determined. I think in part, that's kind of where I stand with God at times. I stand before him, and I, we have some sort of value proposition and when it comes down to it, the thing that I think that I'm worth or the thing that I'm proposing I'm worth, I'm actually not. But God does something very different than what the sharks do. He says, you know what? I think you actually might be selling yourself short. But regardless of what the numbers say, I'll take you. I don't want just 10% of you. I want all of you. That's how valuable your life is to eternity. That's what John chapter 3, I think, illustrates. I think sometimes because this is such a Sunday school chapter that we've read our entire life, we read over it and think, hey, this is something that was great for me before I was a Christian. It's great for me to share the gospel, but here as I stand on the other side of that conversion that maybe it doesn't apply to me, but then you, you read it today and it's like, my goodness, I've missed that every time I've read it. Is that God loves me so much that he sent his son to die in my place, and because of that, 
savior that I'm the most valuable thing to him. Your life matters to eternity. Now this is where we typically stop, right? We read John 16 through 18, we kind of move on, we have our altar call, which that's all appropriate, but we stop. But Jesus says some more in the text, doesn't he? He actually says, or is recorded, saying some really important things. Verse 19 and following, this is how it ends. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved the darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed, but whoever lives by truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. What separates the church from the world isn't guilt or innocence. We're all guilty, just so you know. What separates the church from the world and what the text is illustrating here, I think, is our interaction with the light and how we respond to it. We have a couple of different options. We either stand in front of it, allowing the light to expose everything that we are and all that we've done and trust that Jesus is going to do with it what he promises to do, or we turn from it, we try to hide, we try to conceal. But the way we interact with the light is how we are defined as followers of Christ. And so what happens, at least for me, is when I begin to sit and think about how much God values me or the fact that my life matters to eternity, I begin to ask, am I living my life then as eternity matters? Like, am I responding to it in a way that I should? Because if I truly believed that I was the most valuable possession to God, I think my life would reflect that. I think things would be different. I would begin to then value other things based on how God values me. I would begin to find my value not in what the world says that I am, but who God has named me to be. And then I respond accordingly. But those who do what is right come into the light so that others can see that they are doing what God wants. That's the response to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And once you've entered into that relationship, those who do what is right come into the light so that others can see what they are doing. What do you value now that you know how much you are valued? Should change everything about you. should change everything about who you are and how you respond. You should walk differently, talk differently, communicate differently, work differently. Because your value is determined not by what this world says, but by what God has done for you. His actions illustrate I wholeheartedly believe that if we as the church, as we step into a relationship with Jesus Christ, if we begin to identify with that, 
and that becomes who we are, that is when we change this world. I'm more convinced now than ever, and you hear me say this all the time, that the only hope this world has is the church, is Jesus Christ. It's not going to be a political party. It's not going to be a social media argument. It's not going to be anything else you can think of. I believe it's when the sons and daughters of God, when followers of Jesus Christ, they stand up, they claim their value, and they begin to value the world as Jesus first valued them. And guess what's going to happen? They're going to want a piece of that. And they're going to come. And the world's going to be forever changed. Where is it? I'll ask you one more time. That you find your value. And if you wholeheartedly believe that you are the most valuable possession to God, what changes right here, right now, before you walk out of this room? Let's pray. God, I thank you for just how you you have the ability to speak to us in a new and a real and a fresh way through words that, that we've read dozens of times. I thank you for being a living God who, who just constantly is communicating, who is showing, who is shaping, who is molding us. Father, I am eternally grateful that you saw what I didn't deserve that you saw something in me and in us and that you acted on it. I am eternally grateful that you loved me enough, that you loved us enough to send your son to die in our place. And my prayer is that right here, right now, we reconcile to that point and we find our value right there in Jesus. And that from that, we go out into this world reflecting the light, the change, the value that you've instilled in us, and we change it. We change it for you and for the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.